Hello and welcome to Wooden Teeth, a podcast about truth-telling on politics and health. I'm your host, Jake Williams. Today's truth. Public health is under siege in America. Our public health workforce is being intimidated and physically threatened. The authority of public health agencies is under political attack in state capitals across the country, as we've seen at least 26 states pass laws since the start of the pandemic that permanently weaken government authority to protect public health. This is all happening at a rather inconvenient time. In 2020, the U.S. saw the greatest life expectancy decrease since World War II, which shouldn't be super surprising given the COVID-19 pandemic. The bigger story, the more interesting story, I think, is the trend of the last 40 years. Since 1980, life expectancy in the U.S. has increasingly fallen behind that of our peer countries. And since 2015, that's five years before the outbreak of the pandemic, American life expectancy has fallen each year in absolute terms. Even before the pandemic, the life expectancy decline we were experiencing was unprecedented in the last 100 years. This is occurring despite our spending more per capita on healthcare than any other nation on earth. We need better public health policy in this country, and a great way to start figuring out how is to check out a new book titled Public Health Under Siege, Improving Policy in Turbulent Times. This is a book produced by the American Public Health Association and the Beaumont Foundation, and today, I'm speaking with the CEO of the De Beaumont Foundation, Brian Castrucci. Brian and his fellow editors wrangled together multiple contributing authors, including yours truly, to chip in their thoughts. And despite my involvement, it came out really well. It's a kind of a reader where you can sample a variety of bite-sized perspectives. So if you care about public health and want a real informed unvarnished take of where we're at and where we need to go, I think you're really going to appreciate this conversation that I just had with Brian Castrucci. Enjoy. So welcome, Brian. Thanks for having me, Jake. Is this the first time you've had your name on a book? I have the book in front of me. This is a podcast, not a video, but I'll show it to you here. Is this the first time Brian Castrucci uh, has been on uh, the cover of a book? This is actually the third book that we've done out of the Beaumont. We did a practical playbook one, a practical playbook two, and then Public Health Under Siege came out. And then we just did another book on marijuana policy. Oh, very relevant for us out here in Colorado. Well, this book, I didn't know you were you were so accomplished with the multitude of books, but this book is called Public Health Under Siege, which is a pretty dramatic title. And public health, of course, isn't just a, a concept. It's a field of practice powered by people who have indeed been under assault. So how would you assess the morale of people working in public health right now? Well, I mean, I think it's low. I mean, what what else could it be? I mean, this is this is a group of people whose only aspiration is to keep the public healthy, is to make people able to live their best lives. And in the middle of a, of a pandemic, their reward for that has been bullying and harassment. And 
that's not even to, to account for the fact that these folks have done everything they can. They've thrown everything they have at this pandemic, but what they didn't have were the necessary resources. And every single elected official who's ever cut public health, you know, shares in the blood of 700,000 Americans on their hands. You know, today, as we're recording this, there's a piece um, in the New York Times that's titled Why Public Health Faces a Crisis Across the U.S. And the, the first paragraph goes like this. As she leaves work, Dr. Allison Barry keeps a vigilant eye on her rearview mirror, watching the vehicles around her, weighing if she needs to take a more circuitous route home. She must make sure nobody finds out where she lives. Did you ever think we'd see a time when, you know, people in public health like have to worry about their, their personal safety like they like they do now? I didn't think we'd see it as bad as it is, but I think there have been times throughout most of our practice where we've been confronted with angry with an angry public, whether it's over fluoridation or it's over anti-vaxxing, but I didn't think it would ever get to this point. And so it's probably the the confluence of politicization, the framing that our former president gave us of lives versus livelihoods, putting us against the economy, and and then social media. I think those three things have contributed to the assaults on public health practitioners. It's, it's really scary. So this book isn't just about the people, of course, it's about policy, um, something that's near and dear to my heart. Um, how has public health policy in America been falling short? Well, again, I think with the politicization of public health, people tend to see public health as being about one side of the aisle or the other, when it's really the dirt on which the aisles are built. And we can have almost every and any conversation about health devolve into a conversation about pills and procedures, where it needs to be a conversation of policies and partnerships. So you get a whole bunch of kids coming into a local ER with asthma. Now, those kids are on different insurances. They see different pediatricians. Um, They probably go to different ERs within the same city. So we can never find that cluster of kids and actually tie it right, right back to the apartment building in which they live. And the reason that their asthma is being exacerbated is because of the HVAC system. So medicine can do all it wants to those kids. They never can make those kids healthy. And this is the great fallacy in America. Medicine cannot make all of us healthy. It can restore health to some. It can stop the downfall for others. But true health means us really changing the game. And, and you to change the game, you got to change the rules. Policy, that's the rules of the game. And we, we start out our book with the uh, Shakespeare quote, you know, all, this, all the world's a stage and all of us are merely actors. Well, policy sets the rules of that stage. And that's what we have to understand. That's the only path to health. The path to population health is through policy, not clinical medicine. You know, before the pandemic, uh, we ran a bunch of focus groups and we asked about public health concepts in the field of public health itself. And and we found that not a lot of people really understood what public health was. I think it's safe to say that since the onset of the pandemic, more people 
understand what public health is. I would hope that more people appreciate the the role that public health plays. But also, as we've already discussed, you know, uh, the pandemic has triggered the vitriol um, among a vocal minority. So my question for you is, are the political prospects of public health coming out stronger or weaker post-pandemic? That's a tough question. I, I think about the Johnny Cash song, Man in Black. Like, I would love to tell you that public health is going to be you know, funded completely and everything's going to be better and we're going to learn our lesson from this. But I'm much more on the man in black side of this, that I, I don't think things are going to get better until we are clearly making the demand for what we need in public health and are able to articulate what the value add is. This is the crucial moment. It's the crucial moment to mobilize businesses because they've been touched by public health in a way that they've not necessarily felt it before. It's time to go to elected leaders at a state level and start talking about how much we're spending on public health because the future safety, security, and economic prosperity of our nation relies on us having a robust public health system. And it's not it's not the kind of choose your own adventure that we've seen through this pandemic response. You can't have Georgia doing things or Texas or North Dakota or insert state and governor here doing things that are antagonistic to public health guidance and then expect them to somehow lead the renaissance of public health in this country. And so that's what worries me is that those who are, we're already seeing it, right? Uh, the New York Times article that came out today, or even better, the pieces by Lauren Weber and Kaiser Health News on, on all of the public health under pressure, under siege, I believe it's called, or underfunded under siege. Um, it's an amazing piece that has really shown that, you know, we need to align in this nation around public health. This is one of those issues where the 10th Amendment to the Constitution is a little challenging. Because if, if we had to do defense as a state, as a state's right, we'd have some places that have an army and some that have a navy and some that do nothing at all. And we'd win no wars and we'd be totally unsafe. It's the same thing with public health, right? We understand how to defend against foreign nations, but we don't understand how to defend against microbial threats. And that's what's more of a threat to us right now than anything else. So we need a whole kind of redo of our public health system. We need the federal government to put money in like they do with Medicaid, have a state match and move forward that, that way. But leaving this up to the states, I'm concerned about our future readiness for pandemic response and ensuring a healthy nation. You know, when we began, you were talking about how pills and procedures can't address all of what we need uh, here in this country uh, on health. Um, but when you're selling pills and procedures, um, you're, you're making good money, uh, gen generally speaking, and some of that money um, can be put into the political process um, you know, on behalf of you know, um, insurance companies or the pharmaceutical industry or um, uh, doctors themselves. They all play in that political process and um, they help shape the rules uh, by which our health system is governed. Public health, on the other hand, um, actually saves people money in the end, right? Um, not that people don't get paid for the work that they do, but um, we're actually um, 
doing something uh, that's you know downstream uh, makes it so that in some cases not as many pills or procedures uh, are needed, which is uh, a good thing. But also, kind of does it handicap the field of public health in terms of you know uh, given that this isn't a uh, the same type of money making operation that allows uh, for the creation of resources that can be put put in the political process. Does it not hamstring the field politically? Oh, I mean, of course the field is hamstrung politically. I mean, everyone else is a lobby. You know, they can electioneer alcohol, tobacco, soda. I mean, they all have a lobby. Who lobbies for public health? I mean, you've made this argument. You've made this, like, critical argument in your Stanford Social Science Review article, right? The public health needs a C4. I totally agree with you. I just don't think anyone's going to give you any money. Right. That's that's the problem is who's going to stand up and contribute to a public health C4, someone who is out there, you know, lobbying and electioneering and, you know, getting on candidates radar. We are an afterthought. Right. We are not something that people are thinking about in elections because no one is working to put public health issues onto that kind of election slate. Now, people will take issues within public health right and champion those but rarely does anyone you know people who have said aids funding right let's take that as a great example that was a big political issue for people for powerful people you know we need funding for hiv aids we got funding for hiv aids but we're getting you know we're getting money for the silos not the wrapper yeah that kind of surrounds all those silos in public health and you know, I'm as guilty of this as anybody. In my earlier career, I would have told you, you know, I'm a maternal child health practitioner, I'm a maternal child health epidemiologist. And I would have, you know, as, as we're brought up, we're kind of taught if we're getting money, we may get money at the expense of immunization, but it's okay because it's money for our projects when we're not really taught to look at ourselves in that hole as public health practitioners first and our silo and expertise second. And I think that's something we have to change. But, you know, I, I think if every member of, of ASTO and NATO and APHA were able to contribute to a C4, we have enough to start making some noise. But you're asking people who are, you know, underrepresented in the political process and who have, you know, relatively low salaries to start to contribute. It's, it's hard after, especially in this pandemic, They've given all that they have. But, uh, you know, I, I remember watching the police union in New York endorse Donald Trump. And that was like a big thing. And I thought, what? OK, so why are we covering this live? You know, this this one union in this one city when public health people, if we did that, no one would care. The flight attendants union is another you know, union in my head during the pandemic. I heard the president of the flight attendants union talking about the challenges of being a flight attendant during the pandemic. And I feel for them, like I'm not taking away their truth, but, but damn, like where was our voice as public health practitioners? Because I don't know who had a harder time than public health practitioners through this pandemic, but got less coverage than our public health leaders and practitioners.
You know, uh, to, to your credit, Brian, actually, when I we put up some social media posts about, about the book and right away, I actually got a call from a colleague whose wife works in public health. And he was calling just to say thank you. He's like, I feel like just to your point, um, you know, through this whole thing, public health workers have been kind of underreported on. Um, and it's nice to see that someone actually cares about public health and is, is looking out for its interests. You know, when it comes to the fundraising, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to find people who are willing to, to fund this work, um, aside from, you know, the admirable efforts of people like Mike Bloomberg weighing in on things like sugary drinks taxes or um, vaping, et cetera. There's those individual issues. Um, I, I will say, however, that if somebody, whether at a small donor level or a large donor level, um, was ever willing to, to, to fund, you know, the broader work, you'd think that right now would be the moment, right? So if you're, if you're listening out there, rich, rich person X, Y, or Z, <laughs> talk to Brian or talk to me, um, because I think there's a, a, lot of, a lot of good that we could do um, uh, with your money. Yeah, and I, I, you know, you watch people name schools after themselves, and that, that's admirable, and I get that. But, you know, the, the battle that has to be fought is a, is a political battle. And all of us in philanthropy or in membership organizations or nonprofits, you know, all of us have a certain line that we can't cross at some point. And a C4 doesn't have that restriction. And so if you're going to, listen, if I'm going to fight Mike Tyson, I may not win, but I sure as heck won't win with one hand tied behind my back. Like, give me a fighting chance. Let me have both my hands up. Maybe tie one of Tyson's behind his back. He'll still beat me to death. But you know, if I'm going to be in this fight, I got to have both hands. And what you can get from an investment in real policymaking around public health is significant. And that's, you know, that's the ROI. You know, we spend, if, if you looked at America, like you look at a fish tank, we spend like 99% of our time and our effort and intention just on the fish. Are the fish fed well? Are the fish getting exercise? Are the fish getting good health care? And we totally ignore the cleanliness of the water and the tank. And this is inherently our problem, is we're willing to, to let individuals believe that, that health care and lower taxes and these kinds of things will, will lead them to have a better quality of life. What leads you to have a better quality of life is a community that people can live in, a society where every single person can actually uh, contribute their best selves and not be held back by systems that have made that more challenging. You know, I, I, I feel like if there was a, a beacon political organization out there for public health, first of all, it would have done um, wonders <laughs> fundraising wise during this pandemic. Think of it this way. During the, the Trump era, um, when all sorts of terrible things were happening with immigration and, um, and other things. The ACLU, for example, had you know, record-breaking um, fundraising because people knew where to put uh, their dollars when we were in that time of crisis. If an equivalent organization, which admittedly takes a while to build up, I know, um, existed, public health would have seen that same windfall. And that's just not just a theory. Like I can tell you, 
as I, as I describe in the book at Healthier Colorado, we, we are out there canvassing every day, asking regular people for money for, for public health issues, and they give it. Um, so I just think that there's, I'm optimistic on this. I, I, I think there's potential. I think if, if anything um, were to happen, like I said, it would happen now with respect to, to building up a political infrastructure. So hopefully the book that, that you've produced here will help lead to that. And I think some folks have seen this. I think you know CDC Foundation has done an amazing job rallying funds that they've been able to get to the public health workforce and the state and local health departments. And you know, Judy Monroe's done an amazing job there. But but again, you know, we all have our limitations. It's not that kind of ACLU type organization, right? Which you know, would be phenomenal. That you know could help. It's, it's again, it's the competition mm-hmm. that we taught ourselves in public health. That you know, it, this is the money going to the cancer folks. This is money going to the heart folks. This is money going to, you know, whatever other issue is your key issue. And that sometimes takes away from that public health idea. But you know, this this is the time that if people are going to understand it, uh, this is the time because honestly, the mortality rate for COVID nineteen was definitely not inconsequential. But it was low. And next time around, 5%, 10%, maybe a lower mortality rate, but more severe disease cracking our healthcare system. Like this is this is a pressure test that we fail. This should be a warning shot, you know, that we got across our bow from nature of like, okay, I, I showed you what this could look like, and y'all ran out of toilet paper within the first couple of weeks. If this really got bad, we're not ready for it. And I guess the part that that I lose most sleep about at night is that the loss of 700,000 American lives has been so trivialized. Yeah. You know, as we go into another holiday season, you think about, you know, all of these Thanksgiving tables that are going to be missing people. 700,000 people who were there, who should be there, aren't there anymore. And that your reaction is to yell at me about mask wearing and vaccines and say things on social that I should be arrested for spreading false knowledge. That's that's disturbing to me Uh, because I don't think at any time in this nation's history, when we have been confronted with challenge, we have ripped further apart rather than unifying. And, and that's really, you know, you can't practice public health in an individualistic society. It doesn't work, right? Because there has to be some sacrifice of individual freedoms for a collective good. Um, and that's unfortunately a con- controversial statement I'm making. But it, it shouldn't be, right? Could you have imagined after World War II, you know, or, or, or after, can you imagine after Pearl Harbor, people saying it was fake news, right? It's, it's unconscionable. Yet there are still people who believe that the vaccines rewrite your DNA, they make you infertile, that COVID, COVID has been a hoax, it was released to hurt the world economy. Um, you know, conspiracy theories have always been there kind of like, you know, mold growing in the American experience. But now it has full-throated access to social media and the internet 
And the, de- the, the degradation of fact and science is something we're going to have to really struggle with going forward because folks have found scientists who agree with their unfounded beliefs. And it's a very dangerous time for public health. And this is the time to raise money uh, because everyone's security is in peril. We are a more vulnerable country now than we were at the start of the pandemic because we've seen 26 some odd states pass legislation that limited public health authority instead of enhancing it to ensure that we have protections. And so that's that's the part that when I think about all this, and this is why public health is under siege, and the real purpose of the book is to give people kind of inspirational vignettes to show how people have passed policies that change lives, because that's how we're going to, that's the prescription. That's what we have to do. The prescription for better health in America is thoughtful policy. So for the book, you pulled together um, a number of different authors. And I'm just wondering, was there a particular chapter or chapters that gave you the most hope or the most energy? Besides mine, of course. No, it's totally yours. It was, I mean, there's hope in every single chapter. And I think what's really interesting is it's not all of the public health people writing public health stuff for other public health people to read. You have business people, you have elected leaders, you have people who are starting to get it. And this book is not supposed to be the seven steps of how to make policy that we get in our master's degree programs. It is supposed to be more of of a reader, of a, this is how this happened. This is how, you know, great change came out of great tragedy. Or this is how we took on key issues that we know will make America healthier. How is it that we had 121 consecutive months of economic growth through the end of 2019, but the federal minimum wage didn't move? You know, how is it that all of a sudden eviction is an issue? We have to worry about evictions. You know, because of the pandemic, there's an eviction problem. No, because of the pandemic, you know about the eviction problem. It has lasted long before the pandemic. It will last long after. And in every single instance, the renter is probably underpowered compared to the property owner. So these are issues that COVID has highlighted for us. And we just can't ignore them anymore. We were like leading the world in our ability to ignore social problems before COVID. It's really hard now. COVID, you know, with the racial uprisings following the George Floyd murder. We know the problems and we have a real simple kind of choice to make. Are we going to go back to ignoring them or are we going to actually deal with these issues? Are we going to deal with issues of of eviction? Are we going to say that, you know, if I'm in an apartment building and I'm renting and I'm doing well and I walk to work and my kids are in school and everything's great, but then because some business moves in next door, all of a sudden, my, my rent quadruples because there were no policies that limited that kind of predatory you know, rent increase. And so now all, all of a sudden I went to renew my lease and I got to pay four times what I used to pay. And now I, I have to I move to the extended stay and my kids get involved in some bad issues. And everyone says, you know, oh, you really, you know, you made some mistakes here. I didn't make mistakes. 
the government was supposed to work to protect me from those things that I cannot protect myself. And we're failing people every day. Kids go hungry, go to bed hungry in this nation when Jeff Bezos doesn't even know how much money Jeff Bezos has anymore. That's a real challenge. And I know everyone's going to, you know, people are going to listen to this on the right and say, oh, listen to that social liberal, just kind of mouth off. It's not about being liberal or conservative anymore. It's about being human. And, and we can be a capitalist society. We can you know, do what we have to do. We can debate things on the left and the right. If you are letting a child go hungry in this nation because of a political ideology, then you're warped, right? The health of our people should not be subjugated to political ideology. And if you can read this book, I want everyone, I want the most, give this book to your most conservative friend <laughs> and, and have a discussion about it because this is about humanity. It's not about ideology. Mm -hmm. And if we can solve some of the most human problems we have, then let's go debate ideology all day long. But debating ideology while, while people starve and people are homeless and the fact that we know how to solve every social problem there is, but we simply lack the political will to do it, while we somehow had the political will to build a robot and send it on a tourist mission to Mars, that shows that our values are a little warped right now, especially in the middle of a pandemic. Public Health Under Siege is the book. Brian, thank you so much for joining us and great job on the book. I appreciate it. Thank you for your contributions. And uh, I just hope people buy it, read it, and it starts conversation with them, their friends, and their family. Okay, you can get the book at Amazon or the APHA store or multiple other outlets. If you Google Public Health Under Siege book, you should be able to find it easily. Also, please help people find this podcast easily by rating it and subscribing to it. Thanks, and I will see you next time.